Hey crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. Before we get started today, I just wanted to remind you that there are three things you can do that can make such a difference in the life of a lowly starship captain like me. The first would be to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we can be found at EIST Pod or by searching for Enterprising Individuals. We'd love to hear from you on social media. You can also reach the show at EISTPod at gmail.com with questions or comments, or if you have a suggestion for a potential guest on the program. The second thing would be to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTPod. For just $1 a month, you can become a member of the crew and receive access to exclusive benefits, including live Live shows like the one we're recording this July at ConvergenceCon with TNG writer and author Melinda Snodgrass, plus my DS9 rewatch recaps, and coming soon are episode commentaries, beginning with the unaired original series pilot, The Cage, as well as special merchandise, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes, and more. The adventure begins at patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. Check it out. And thirdly, we are going to cross the streams a bit and talk about the wars which dare not speak their adjective on this episode. And I know many fans of Trek are also fans of wars and vice versa. So why not check out an author who has written for both franchises? New York Times bestselling author John Jackson Miller has written a trilogy of books called the Prey Trilogy, and they cover 100 years of intrigue and action in the Star Trek universe. And they're currently this May part of a Kindle deal in which you can get each book for just $1.99. I've got a link to Amazon in the show notes if you want to take advantage of this great deal. And you can enjoy a series that features Klingons, the Enterprise-E, Riker on the Titan, Conspiracies, Con Men, and more. But let's say you'd rather see a Star War. He's got you covered there, too. John is one of four authors who contributed to the novella collection Canto Bite, which features stories set in the treacherous casino city. And the paperback version of the book comes out this May 29th. You can pre-order it by going to Amazon.com. I've left a link in the show description for that as well. Whenever you go to Amazon.com, you can click on our Amazon banner at EnterprisingIndividuals.com to take you there, and your purchases will help support this show at no extra cost to you. And that would warm the cockles of this old sailor's heart. Mmm, hot cockles. Hope you enjoy the show today. It was a lot of fun to record. And let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I'm currently accepting subscriptions for my Star Trek-themed grunge revival zine, There Is Always Alternative. I'm joined on this episode by Pete the Retailer. Pete is the host of the Star Wars Minute, a daily podcast where he and co-host Alex Robinson analyze, scrutinize, and celebrate the Star Wars movies one minute at a time. He's also the co-host of ABC Devo, a podcast that examines in alphabetical order the songs of the band Devo, and he's a former co-host of the podcast Nerd Geek Dork and Alphabetical, the internet's only show that went through the Beatles' entire catalog from 12 to Y. Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Galileo 7, the 16th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. 
Immediately after the premiere of Star Trek in September of 1966, the character of Spock became a sensation among fans of the series. Leonard Nimoy, the actor behind the character of Spock, was taken aback by the flood of weekly fan mail he began to receive, and he would be regularly mobbed by hordes of fans when he appeared in public. The character was championed early in the development of the series by Gene Roddenberry, who sketched him as a capable officer and a constant reminder that humanity in the 23rd century had made allies beyond its own species. But the Spock that today's fans know and love, the Spock of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and only Nixon could go to China, was still years away, and the character of Mr. Spock would continue to develop through the original series and six feature films, thanks to the efforts and creativity of multiple writers, directors, and Nimoy himself. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Pete, I always ask of every guest on the show, how did you become a Star Trek fan? I was born into it. My uh, my father was a uh, uh, original brand, uh, original vintage <laughs> Trekkie. Sure. Um, you know, he loved it when it was on, and then it's always a, uh, you know, a thing that was uh, was around, and, and we would get, you know, there was a... Uh, uh, here in the in the New York area, there was a there was a Pennsylvania um, public television station that would play some episodes like late Saturday nights. Okay, and so that became a thing for a little while, and then the, when the Next Generation aired, then that was kind of a you know it was always a kind of a bonding thing of sorts. And uh, I've been warned about crossing the streams on this show in the past, but I think it's appropriate <laughs> here. Uh, when did you become a Star Wars fan? Similar timing. I was about you know uh, not quite two when star wars came out and so it was a natural um uh kind of you know they were the two easily intertwined the streams were crossed early on i watched crossed. both with abandon yeah i i, I was uh, totally into both but the star wars was more um you know it was you find kids on the playground who were into star wars you know, you you could you could play Han Solo with a kid, but uh, you know it was fewer and far between, further between to to get the kids who wanted to uh, you know be the character or Spock or vice versa. That's interesting, and I think that's a good point. I can remember the times that I played Star Wars. I think on the playground, but not not quite as many times playing Star Trek. Although I'm sure that we would probably argue over who got to play uh, Mr. Spock because he's definitely a fan favorite character. Sure. How did the idea for Star Wars Minute originate? Um, but coincidentally enough, it it, it uh, came from, um, you know, I, I every time that Alex, my co-host, and I were at a party or anything like that, we would end up, you know, usually end up off in a corner talking about Star Wars. <laughs> and so we we know we we knew we wanted to do something with Star Wars, and he was right. he was having some success with his uh, his pod his cartooning based podcast and Panthers show and. Um, we, we did kind of a, a couple of test episodes where, you know, when his, his co-host on that show was unav- in, unavailable, we did, uh, we just get on and talk about star Wars and, um, and, and we realized that we complimented each other. We gelled pretty well. So, um, we wanted to do it and, and, you know, we was like, all right, let's make this a project, but what do we do? What's our hook? And I had been, uh, listening to a, um, not to, not to cross promote or not to, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's room enough for everybody, but I, I had been listening at the time, uh, a Star Trek podcast and mission log. Sure. And I was like, oh, they're, they're going through every episode in order. And like, I was like, well, we need something like that. But if we did it for Star Wars, there would just be, you know, at the time, six episodes. And that's not enough. And it's like, right. how can we break it down further? We need some kind of, you know, ridiculous kind of, you know, capital plan like this, that, that's going to, you know, massive amounts of, of uh, planning and commitment. That's what I need. 
Sure, right. <laughs> and uh, then at, at some point I said, hey, well, what if we just broke it down minute by minute? Then we'd have 120 episodes, you know, just for the first movie alone. Went, went around to a couple of people. I was like, is this a good idea or is this a crazy idea? <laughs> and, and famously, the the best answer was both. So, <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> minute by minute and episode by episode podcasts. Uh, I think are a good idea, or at least they're definitely seeing an explosion recently. And I think that's thanks in no small part to the Star Wars Minute. Is it difficult to find something to say about each and every minute of a film? Uh, we were worried that, I mean, at least in our case, we were worried that we might have some minutes that that uh, we wouldn't find enough to say about. But, you know, it's it's we've, I'll say it's a combination of being... So, you know, the Star Wars universe and, and certainly the Star Trek universe, you know, fits this bill that there's so so much rich kind of outside information. Right. Like there's there's so much supplemental material behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, novels, you know, everything. Right. Um, that we, you know, we, we were pleasantly surprised to find that we, you know, we never even, you know, when we're covering the opening crawl or the closing credits, like there's always something to talk about. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, at least for an episode length. And, and I'm amazed that, you know, uh, now in the kind of uh, movies by minutes community, as it were, um, that, you know, some of the movies, some of the franchises, even the people are committed to. I'm like, wow, I'm I'm amazed and impressed that you can come up with something to talk about for every minute of that. But it, it, <laughs> uh, it it's. It makes sense. You know, if, if somebody is, you know, if this is their, if this is your Star Wars, if this is your thing that like, oh, I'm, I'm all about this movie, then you're going to find the stuff, you know, you can talk about what it means to you and, it, and, you know, especially having, having guests on, find out what, you know, what those things mean to them. Uh, my Minute with Andre is a podcast I'm thinking about doing. Yeah. Going minute by minute through my dinner with Andre. On your show, uh, you talk about um, people's orders, uh, how they sort of rank the Star Wars films. Uh, do you have a Star Trek films order? If we just uh, keep it to like the original cast films? Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I only really dig the original cast sure. films. Um, and it's tough. It's, you know, I, there's, there's a big. There's a war, much like Spock, uh, there's a war going on when it comes to, you know, my logical brain, what I know is a better movie versus what I enjoy, you know, the, yeah. the, um, I had, you know, in my collection growing up, in addition to bootleg copies of Star Wars and Empire, I had, um, um, the motion picture. And so that was the one that I watched the most. And that was the one that I kind of, you know, we had the, the soundtrack to that on vinyl and it was, you know, it was very much kind of my star trek movie for a long time and you know saw many of the other ones in the theater and I, I had good experiences with them but you know it kind of all stems from you know I, I think the one that i feel most at home with that i would often call my favorite is the motion picture but okay sure um, after that then it's you know i do love the even numbered ones i i, I don't hate right. the odd numbered ones and you know maybe i love them a little less but i really you know i, I will still you know much like how even the bad quote unquote bad Star Wars movies I'd much rather watch them than you know uh, uh, whatever uh, not to sound like an old man but whatever high paced action franchise is going on right now you know <laughs> yes, I'd rather watch sure. the Phantom Menace than you know uh, than the Fast and the Furious but uh, and so similarly you know <laughs> Star Trek 5 I would you know I, I if it's on I'll put it on and I'll watch it yeah it's a sort of uh, I think the term comfort food gets overused but yeah for all its flaws I could if it's on somewhere, uh, it's one of those movies that I finish watching. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, you also have an affinity for um, Star Wars that is a new hope over most um, of the original trilogy. Isn't that right? Star Wars is, is such a, you know, I think the it's it's more successful in in terms of being a quote-unquote good film than than the motion picture they're both very much i think you know um you know excellent kind of first uh cracks at this universe you know star trek it was basically a new you know entry into star trek and and for a lot of people it might have been their first you know entry into star trek and Mm -hmm. so um, you know, I love, I love chapter one. <laughs> so I love, sure, yeah. you know, I, I like fellowship the most probably out of the, out of the, the Lord of the Rings movies. You know, I love, I love getting the band together kind of, uh, you know, opening acts. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, you know, it, I, I understand there's, you know, lots of good other stuff with character work and you get it, you know, you want you establish stuff. It's, it's more fun to go deep into how they interact, but I love that kind of, you know, opening up a whole new world of, of, of wonder. Yeah. So it's going to win with me. Yeah, starting a story, it's kind of does have to work for you, and I think there's a converse effect in that. It's hard to end something, you know. Um, I think Return of you were mentioning um, the Hobbit movies, like Return of the King's pretty good, but it doesn't as a movie. It's a mess, and you know, Return of the Jedi is generally seen as being you know the inferior film in the trilogy. The Star Trek films just kind of peter out. Although Star Trek Six is is pretty good, but it's good because they got the guy from Star Trek Two to come back and basically do Star Trek Two again. Right. Uh, I'm glad to have a Star Wars expert here because I'm curious. Um, both Star Wars and Star Trek are seeing a resurgence in recent years, um, and their respective fandoms are having to navigate the transition to a new generation of content. How do you think that Disney is doing so far managing the brand of Star Wars? Um, I think they're doing a fine job. I think they're, you know, it's they're not going to please everybody all the time, but they haven't really. I mean, some people are taking kind of irrational exception to the the latest one the last jedi but i feel like overall they're making movies that are you know you know they're they're you know a well-tuned well they know it makes a good movie so they're they're gonna make i think they're you know the worst that they can do is like a b minus <laughs> ever okay pretty much. sure yeah <laughs> um you know they have a winning um uh kind of formula there and they you know they they have you know parts that are going to work and it's going to you know as long as they're playing around in that universe i don't think they can do they can go too wrong. Uh, speaking of new content, are you watching Star Trek Discovery? Um, I watched the first episode, and I, and I'm not not out of uh, you know distaste. I, I just it didn't grab me right away, and so I put it kind of on a shelf. And sure, I have plans to. Um, but I'm also not um, you know like the original series is very much my. Star Trek. I've seen you know all the episodes multiple times, and sure. Next Generation. I watched it when it was on, and then after that, I start to drift a little bit. You know, I've seen uh, very little of Deep Space Nine, um, okay. and a handful of Voyagers, and uh, only the the Enterprise ones where they interact with, with the original series stuff because it right, <laughs> uh, you know, stuff like that. Which you know, so I, I I tend I'm very much about kind of the original series and the original crew films, and that's. I'm not saying the rest of it isn't Star Trek, but it it doesn't it doesn't have that hook for me as much as as a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, I'm always interested in how a brand is sort of managed um, and sort of 
over time how they continue to get sort of things out of it. Um, when I was in college, and this is you know pre prequels, I had my Star Wars VHS box set, and I was going to give it to my child, you know, one day. Uh, and then the prequels came out, and they weren't you know they weren't great, but at least I thought, okay, that's it. We've got six films, and. Now we're looking at a future for both Star Wars and Star Trek where there'll be films and shows that you and I will never see. We'll be long dead and these things will still be coming out. Do, yeah. do, you, do you think that there's a shelf life for a brand or can you keep like renewing a property eternally? Um, you know, I think it'll be, you know, it'll lapse for a little bit and then come back. You know, it's kind of like the stuff that inspired these, you know, like I was... Uh, while I was editing the other day, I, t- I tend to put stuff on just that, that'll be visually interesting on the TV with, with the sound off while I'm editing a podcast. Just mm-hmm. so every once in a while, you know, when I look up and take a breath, it'll be something something vaguely entertaining to look at. And <laughs> um, I put on some episodes of Buck Rogers okay. and then decided to read, you know, the, the 70s show, Buck Rogers, and, and, you know, decided to then read about the history of it. And it's, you know, that's, you know, getting close to 100 years old, I think. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's... Uh, Maybe not a hundred, but but you know, it's it's getting up there in years, and it kind of you know that and Flash Gordon and stuff like that, where it kind of keeps coming back, and and you know it'll it'll be popular for a while. You know, it'll have a, a serious resurgence, then kind of drift, and I think we're headed for that. You know, it'll go in cycles. I don't think. Um, sometimes there won't be new material for a little while. That'll be fine, but it will right. you know it'll never completely die. There'll always be something kind of like oh yeah, in the works. Sure. Are you looking forward to uh, Solo, which is not a Mario Van Peebles movie, I've been told? <laughs> um, a little less so now that I know that it's <laughs> well, not yeah. Van Peebles driven. Um, sneak him in there. Yeah, I, I, um, I am, you know, cautious optimism is the, is the byword. That's, the, that's what we keep saying. And, I, I, you know, there's a lot of things kind of behind the scenes things to make people cautious. But um, well, yeah. there's also, you know, it's in the hands of people who really know what they're doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. again, I think I think the worst that it'll be is a B minus. And I think it'll be, you know, one of those things a lot like as much as I say, I love the original series. These the new kind of, you know, uh, uh, what's the, the Kelvin timeline Star Trek movies? I like them fine. And when well, most of them, <laughs> I like <Sure>. them fine <laughs> when I when I see them in the theater. Um, but it's not necessarily my you know I, I go and i'm like oh i just had two hours of fun in star trek world right and then i'm not you know i don't have to own it i don't have to have it be a thing it, it's just like oh that was a good time yeah and and that's <laughs> that's really all i'm looking for um out of most <laughs> of these and then with star wars uh, movies obviously it's different that you know i know that you know three years from now whatever comes out i'll i'll have to dissect and really get into but is that your plan then to just keep going you know as long as you can yeah but when, when we started it wasn't because <laughs> there were the disney deal hadn't really happened yet you yeah know, we, when we launched and we were just going to do the first movie and see what happened and then we were going to do the trilogy and see what happened and then we we're like well we might as well do the prequels and um and now it's they're cranking one out every year and we're doing a season every year so as long as we keep it up and they keep it up we'll see do you have is there a spreadsheet somewhere that says like okay 2023 will hit the end of the last jedi and then we have to start on the next thing um no i mean it's it's basically cyclical you know we we timed it out we do a a, about six months on six months off so it works out to you know per calendar year they're coming out with one movie and we're covering one movie so we have a a kind of constant uh 
not a foot race, but you know, we have this constant cushion, constant buffer, uh, that we know, you know, it's, it, it's always, okay. The thing that's coming out this year is, is, you know, three years from now, that's what we're talking about. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, I want to talk real quick before we move on about your interest in music. Um, you've got alphabetical and, uh, ABC Devo. How did your, your music fandom start? Fairly pedestrian. I, think. I don't know. I, <laughs> nobody was, you tell. nobody was super into, uh, pop music in my family. I mean, my, my mom got me the white album, I think for my 12th birthday or something okay. like that. So that sure. was a good entree into that. But yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that I liked when I was being a nerdy kid, I liked, you know, comedy kind of stuff. I liked, you know, my my uh, my friend and, and uh, alphabetical co-host, Adam, uh, does a show called Your Favorite Album. When I was mm-hmm. trying to think of what, you know, what, what's my favorite album of all time, I went back to my first favorite album, which was Chipmunk Punk. Okay. <laughs> you know, the Chipmunks doing a, not really punk so much, but like a lot of new wave-y songs. Right, yeah. Um. And so that, I think, influenced a lot of what I like in popular music. And then Weird Al, of course, is a huge kind of like my entree into just about everything okay. um, was was through Weird Al, um, you know, and including Devo. Like the reason why I know about Devo is because of he threw in uh, a verse from from Chaco Homo into a, a polka medley and then did a, a pastiche, you know, a Dare to be Stupid is is. You know, the, as as Mark Mothersbaugh once said, the best Devo song, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's you know I was listening to it you know on a radio. You know, I had a little boombox that I would play stuff that irritated grown-ups when I was a kid, and uh, you know, a camp counselor or something was just like, "The hell is this? It sounds like Devo." I was like, "No, it's Weird Al." Okay. But, uh, uh, then that stuck in my head. It's like maybe maybe Devo sounds like Weird Al. So. It's we can never really tell how we're gonna sort of come to things. I remember listening to uh, Alphabetical, and I can't remember who, but I think it was one of your uh, co-hosts that said that their way in was basically uh, the anthology uh, or like the anthology's albums. And it was similar for me. I'd always been aware of the Beatles, like everybody knows. I want to hold your hand or, or whatever it is, but somehow I got my hands on. Uh, the first anthology and just started listening to it. And it's not even, as you know, like the best versions of those songs or those recordings. There's things like Cayenne that's like, well, I've never heard this before. But somehow that went like, huh, maybe there's something here. And then I, you know, became a Beatles fan after that and got all their albums. Marketing-wise, that was a good... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, the the Beatles obviously are very successful in marketing. Oh, yeah. They um, don't need our help. In general. But uh, that, you know, that kind of... Timeline wise, having that come out and having it be such a big deal got a whole new kind of generation that had just kind of barely missed, you know, like because I feel like my my mom was just um, old enough to have it not be, you know, like I I think her parents thought she was a little too old for the Beatles Mm. when they were huge. Um. And so that, like, you know, obviously wasn't the case. They're universal, and you know, right. uh, they're more than you know to to the parents at the time. They just seemed kind of like a you know a teeny bopper kids act, um, you know, screaming teenagers and what have you. Um, and so I think then that like the people post that era, you know, their kids or or you know people who just missed it the first time around, like to give them this entree, this you know, like okay, here's the thing about the the history of them and in new albums and all the albums are out, you know, and you can get, uh, cause a couple of years before that, I think it was 87 when they finally all came out on CD and it was this good kind of like, you know, making a big push out of it and giving everybody kind of a, a jumping on point, a foothold is a, it was well done. Right. 
here's free as a bird, but for, forget that. Look at this other yeah, stuff. Exactly. Uh, if why you like you that, you'll love this. <laughs> why did you choose this specific episode, uh, the Galileo 7, to discuss today? Well, so th- this is always one of my favorites uh, for multiple reasons, but I think primarily there's a lot of stuff in it that resonates with me thematically um, that, you know, my... My, I was growing, you know, growing up, I was, I was, my dad's ideal was Spock. You know, he, he loved Spock and, uh, and was, you know, uh, subtly, maybe not so subtly, you know, uh, uh, trying to be that and trying to raise me somewhat like that, <laughs> um, to, to be kind of, you know, maybe not coldly logical, but as, you know, <laughs> as logical as a human can be. Right. And, uh, and then so in you know he was always kind of you know my favorite character and then uh, as i get older and i've done you know i've been uh you know i've had jobs where i've had responsibilities you know and i've been manager management and and all kinds of stuff and and this episode that kind of you know explores the perils and the pressures of leadership and and you know through this angle of spock is is totally i think about it a lot sure it comes up in day-to-day life way more than it should. <laughs> I never thought about that before uh, with Spock as maybe like uh, the manager at like a deli. That's uh, He's really in the weeds here on Lunch Rush. Yeah. Well, he's like the assistant manager and the manager's not there. Oh, sure. And, right. Yeah. So he's got to, you know, <laughs> figure out what to do. And I've, I've, I've been that. I've been in that position so many times. <laughs> and that, you know, I've, I've determined, you know, in life, I'm most of the time I'm a better Spock. I'm a better first officer than I am a captain and that's okay. It's okay to be that. (laughs) I mean, there's some things obviously that, you know, I, I can totally confidently take the lead on, but in most instances, you know, I work better kind of having somebody to report to and bounce off of and to give me some parameters. Sure. Uh, You worked at uh, forbidden planet for, for a long time, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, one of the main (laughs) instances that I can think of as being, you know, uh, the, when I was a manager there for most of the time, I, most of the time that I worked there, I was a manager and, and the, the first time I kind of closed out the store by myself and just kind of sitting there way past closing with just, you know, piles of cash around me trying to figure out what, you know, what didn't add up and, and right. there's people who want to leave, but I'm just like, wait, 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 let me just count it again. And, and <laughs> sure. <laughs> luckily nobody was throwing spears at us, but yeah, that would have made things a little worse. Yeah. It felt like it, but, uh. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, you know, it's continuation of, of, you know, the stuff that I loved growing up. I naturally, the, I think it's more the Star Trek kids that led to my comic book collection than the Star Wars kids. The Star Wars kids kind of moved on, you know, after a little bit, but. Sure. Um, you know, the Star Trek kids stayed and they were, <laughs> a lot of them were into comic books and it's, you know, I, I befriended them and eventually got into comics so between comic books science fiction books you know and and toys all related stuff like that it it, uh, working at forbidden planet for a long time was a natural you know extension of of all the stuff that i was into well we are talking the original series episode the galileo 7 as i said it's the 16th episode of the first season of the original series it first aired on january 5th of 1967 The story for the episode is by Oliver Crawford. Uh, Crawford was a television writer and a novelist who wrote three episodes for the original series, uh, Galileo 7. He wrote the teleplay for Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, and he co-wrote the story for The Cloudminders with David Gerald. 
The teleplay for the episode is by Oliver Crawford and by Espar David. Uh, Espar David was the pen name of playwright and TV writer Shimon Vinzelberg. Vinzelberg also wrote Dagger of the Mind, which is my favorite episode of the original series. Mm-hmm. And he uh, wrote the pilot for The Time Tunnel and also the first five episodes of Lost in Space, which of course starred Bill Mooney of Barnes and Barnes. I know you're a Fish Heads fan. Yeah. And Crawford was inspired by the 1939 RKO film Five Came Back about a plane that crashes into the Amazon forest and the survivors struggle to stay alive. That film starred a young Lucille Ball, who was, of course, the head of Desilu Studios, where Star Trek was produced. There are also similarities in the episode to the 1950 film Destination Moon, where a group of astronauts are low on fuel and have to contemplate leaving some of their crew behind. Interestingly, that film is based on a book by Robert Heinlein entitled Rocket Ship Galileo. The episode was directed by Robert Gist, or Gist, I'm going to go with Gist. He was a TV director, and he was also a former actor. He directed for series like The Twilight Zone, Mission Impossible, and Hawaii Five-0. And as an actor, he was in the films Miracle on 34th Street and Strangers on a Train, and he appeared on the television shows Gunsmoke and Rawhide. The star date given for this episode is 2821.5. And your assignment, Pete, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Galileo 7. Let's see. Spock's shuttle crew is trapped on the planet. Um, I'm trying to work in the, the mechanism of the, uh, <laughs> that, that they have to leave. Right. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, um, commissioner says Enterprise has to leave. Spock's gamble pays off. Oh, I, yeah, I've, I was working up to 20. I was like, I only have two left, but I've got seven left. That's luxurious. <laughs> uh, and the crew uh, lives. <laughs> the crew survives, and I've got three left. That uh, You can always stuff in. Uh, yeah, the end. <laughs> Stuffy <laughs> Happily bureaucrat. Happily ever after. There you go. Uh, giant spears. Or uh, they make fun of him for saving their lives. Yeah, yeah I don't even, didn't even bring in the giant spears or the, the, the <laughs> it didn't get to, you know, the, the, I, really the, the kind of the mission, the, the uh, you know, the, the one that the commissioner is just kind of, in, you know, constantly getting them to get back to business about is, is really my, I don't even remember what it is just because it comes up once and then he just, after that, he's just kind of a like a like an alarm clock with a cape that just shows up. And he's just <laughs> like five more minutes, and like, right? You know, goes like flourishes his cape and walks, goes back into the turbo lift. Yeah, I know he keeps. I don't know where he keeps going. Like, is he have <laughs> yeah. like a bladder problem, or he's uh, going off to get a bump or something like that? But yeah, he just keeps coming on it and going back off. Well, uh, at that... first, it's it's you know he's like got plenty. He's like twenty four more hours, Kirk. You're on the <laughs> clock, and it's like all right. Well, you can just go like do whatever now you can go you know have a meal lots of movie like you got plenty of time uh that's a pretty good summary i think and you wisely uh dropped a lot of articles and modifiers that's the way to pack all the words in <laughs> uh here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode this episode is the first appearance of shuttlecraft in star trek uh the concept of the transporter was devised for the series to avoid costly special effects that would be required to show the enterprise landing uh the shuttles uh, or the idea of shuttles was part of the original series concept but Desilu rejected the creation of uh, props and sets for shuttles uh, due to cost. Uh, and this is despite the fact that Roddenberry wanted to have a shuttlecraft in uh, as early as The Enemy Within, uh, also this episode, and of course The Menagerie. Um, negotiating over the shuttlecraft question actually delayed production on this episode by two months, but eventually they struck a deal with model company AMT, in which AMT would build the shuttle uh, and the sets in exchange for the licensing rights to make the models. Did you have any AMT models as a kid? 
Um, I did. I believe they were AMT. They were. Uh, I had some from the the motion picture. Um, oh, I had, okay, like, sure. Um, I had Spock's shuttle that he he pulls up to the, uh, you know, the Vulcan shuttle that he pulls up to the Enterprise in, and I think maybe like a Klingon ship. But okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, the, you know, like most, like a lot of projects and other things, they ended up, you know, maybe like eighty percent complete. And then right, <laughs> kind of lingering. I don't think I had the patience for models. Uh, I didn't have a lot of models when I was a kid. But if you had the uh, Enterprise model from the motion picture, you could put it together. Then you could put your soundtrack on, and you could just kind of stare at it from different angles for twenty minutes. There you go. It's like the movie, <laughs> right? Uh, all shuttlecraft in the original series that appear are the Galileo. Technically, despite its destruction in this episode, stock footage of the shuttle was used for all the subsequent shuttle appearances. Uh, in the shuttle's final appearance in the season three episode, "The Way to Eden," the full full scale model was repainted to re- read "Galileo 2 to reflect the fact that this is this is a different shuttle. Uh, this episode received a thorough going over for the mid 2000s remaster of TOS, uh, including a redesigned Murasaki Quasar, uh, CGI shuttlecrafts, and the docking bay shots. And they reworked the final sequence where the Galileo is jettisoning its fuel and also where it begins to burn up in the atmosphere of Taurus II. And this episode marks the first appearance in Star Trek of the rank of Ensign as Ensign O'Neill is mentioned in the episode, because he meets his death off screen, one can only speculate on what color his shirt was. Hmm. Guest stars for this episode include John Crawford, who appears as Galactic High Commissioner Ferris. He's probably best known for portraying Sheriff Bridges on the family drama The Waltons, and he appeared in films and shows throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, including Lost in Space and The Time Tunnel. Reportedly, he did not have a very good time on set, and he clashed with Shatner a lot during filming. Although his character is a bit of a bully and a bureaucrat, uh, that's two things that Kirk has no patience for. So maybe it was a bit of method acting. I'm a little disappointed that he doesn't get his comeuppance at all. He doesn't get his like, see, you know, the the button at the end of the episode doesn't give him. It's it's them kind of giving Spock a hard time instead of him being like, and my, you know, see what you, you would have had these men die, and you know, right, yeah, and like, you were right, Kirk, you know, nothing like that. He's just presumably just kind of steaming away in his office somewhere. Yeah, it's kind of a moot point, and I, I think it's, I'm not sure um, this is really what it is, but it's, I think it's kind of because there is no right answer, really. Like, Kirk is just following orders. There's, there's this, um, especially in the new films, there's this um, cultural idea now that Kirk is this maverick that just runs off half-cocked and does all this stuff, but he was really like a very by-the-book type guy most of the time. And so they've got a little extra time. He's got this order to study phenomena and things like that, and so he's doing it. And the commissioner is completely right. Um, it's a plague, I think. There's always a plague somewhere on some colony in Star Trek. Yeah. And so they've got to get the medicine to them. And so they're both kind of doing the right thing, although Ferris is a huge jackass about the fact they even put like <laughs> yeah. s- specific like inserts in where he's sort of like looking arch when they announce that the shuttle's been lost or something like that. So they definitely set him up as a villain. But to have him get dumped on at the end would be a bit against the spirit of chain of command, I think. Although I would have liked to have seen it. There's a continuity, uh, I think, between these early Federation or space probe agency uniforms that we see um, up to going through Enterprise and into Discovery, I think. Um, They're both navy blue and they feature um, like silver or gold piping. You see that on Garth of Izar's uniform and like the Mm -hmm. jumpsuits on Enterprise. So I... Even though, you know, some fans take issue with the look of shows like Discovery in comparison to TOS, I think you can see the same kind of sartorial DNA, um, that same kind of continuity going through up until they just start wearing colored T-shirts. Right. 
Yeah, and, and this is also, you know, whatever continuity, you know, they, they kind of, uh, they make some issues for themselves, but then they also try to, you know, they keep it in the same ballpark most of the time. But, yeah, you know, again, motion picture had the weirdest, like, change into, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, terry cloth rompers, and then, uh, you know, <laughs> then brought it back into a kind of, you know, complete change again, but into a, a kind of more traditional military-looking thing that, Right, right. Um, you know that even that doesn't really it shares a little bit of DNA with this stuff, but it, it you know, I, I get, I get, I, I'm fine with all the, the stuff that they've you know design wise. Again, I'm not, I'm not holding, uh, not holding any of the other stuff to the fire. I'm not saying like, oh, I don't like Enterprise. I'm just like, oh, I just it just hasn't grabbed me yet. I'm sure one day I'll sit down and watch all of it. Sure. Hopefully you've not in one sitting, but <laughs> you've got a lot of time left. That's the way I look at things. I have a lot of time yeah. left. Exactly. And so I got to start parsing these things out. 50, 50 is when I'm going to get into botany. That's when I really want to start mm. studying herbs and things like that. Uh, Ferris's uniform has a flowery undershirt, uh, like a paisley kind of collar. And like mm. you mentioned, I don't think it's even a cape. I think just his arms have little capes. <laughs> Which is particularly distinctive. I don't know if uh, high commissioners get to pick their own tailors, but that seems like that's what's going on. Like maybe the the norm of the out, outfit is pretty standard, but he added the little flourish there to be right. You know, or maybe that's what makes him a high commander versus just a you know commander. <laughs> right. When you're high commander, you get the paisley. Right. Lieutenant Boma in this episode is played by Don Marshall. Don Marshall is best known for playing Dan Erickson on the Irwin Allen-produced television series Land of the Giants. In fact, his work in this episode uh, was good enough, the studio liked it enough, that they wanted to bring this character back for later episodes, but his commitment to Land of the Giants meant that he wouldn't be able to return. Land of the Giants is about, wait for it, a spacecraft that crash lands on a planet inhabited by giant people. Just like this episode. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah, what weird. Uh, in another interesting set of circumstances, Marshall appeared uh, on Roddenberry's previous series, The Lieutenant. Uh, and in that episode, uh, to set it right, Nichelle Nichols played his character's girlfriend. And then later on, uh, the two of them played husband and wife in a 1964 TV movie uh, called Great Getting Up Morning. Hmm. And he went on to have many TV and film credits, including a supporting role in The Thing with Two Heads, hmm. which somebody should do a minute by minute podcast on for sure. <laughs> The thing with two minutes. They could do it two at a time. <laughs> two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, Peter Marco uh, plays the ill-fated Lieutenant Catano. Uh, he doesn't have many credits as an actor, although he appeared on The Outer Limits, uh, 12 O'Clock High, and Hogan's Heroes. This was his last known acting appearance. And I only bring him up so I can play my stupid new little game in a mirror dorkly, where I point out that if you squint and have hot sauce thrown in your face, a certain actor looks just a little bit like another actor. Hmm. Previous subjects of the show include Charlie Brill from The Trouble with Tribbles, who as Arn Darvin looks just a little bit like a prep school John Lennon, although the neuro suit is doing a lot of the work. And Stephen Marlowe, who plays Zabo in a piece of the action, looks just a little bit like a Dixieland Mark Ruffalo. Trying to get this game off the ground. So Peter Marco in this episode looks just a little like Fred Armisen, but specifically when he's playing Obama on Saturday Night Live. Just a little Mm. bit. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, side by side, and this one is a real stretch. But John Crawford as Ferris looks just a little bit like what you'd get if Fred Gwynn and Trey Parker were in a transporter accident. <laughs> now, 
not 90s Trey Parker, all sweaty in a silk shirt with the frosted tips. This is like mid 2000s Trey Parker. He, like he's in a blazer. Yeah. He's salt Business and pepper. Man, Trey Parker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a little fringe, you know, some little bangs there. If you played this game with Star Wars, I was thinking about this, uh, you'd be picking the same actors. You'd be like, wow, Porkins looks like the top men guy from Raiders. <laughs> right. or, or General Veers looks like uh, Donovan from Last Crusade and the guy from View to a Kill. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, uh, you know, all those, we, we, you know, we, we like to bring that up whenever we find them. It's like, oh, this guy was also, and it's usually the stuff that was filming around the same time at the same place. So all those, Is it because they know. were all filmed like around like Pinewood Studios or like in London? yeah. So it's all, you know, Superman, Superman 2, uh, many, any James oh, Bond yeah, movie from yeah, around right. that era, like late 70s, early 80s, James Bond. Um, and, you know, the, the indie and Temple of Doom, you know, Raiders Temple of Doom, uh, that's uh, partially just kind of, you know, same casting, whatever, you know, they knew who they liked. But uh, right. Um, I'm trying to remember the uh, there's another one or two weird like. um, um I can't remember the name of the movie, but there's there's a totally not genre movie that was filmed around the same time, too, that a lot of people pop up in. It's like weirdly it's not from here to eternity, but it, it's some, something something uh, I'll, I'll think of it. OK, but there's a, it, it's a weird like, oh, OK, like like I know some of them are in Gandhi, but then there's another one that's like <laughs> similar, but has has more of them in it. OK, <laughs> have you seen um, what is it? Um uh, Elstree, 1976, that the documentary about uh, shooting uh, in that area around the, uh, making Star Wars at that time. I did. I, I heard a lot of people kind of uh, not bad about it, but they were just kind of you know it got a lukewarm response from the people I knew who saw it. So then by the time I went to it, I was expecting it to not be great, but I really enjoyed it. Oh, okay. Because it wasn't um, representative, or because it just wasn't like put together well, like what was their argument with it? I don't know. I, I think that maybe they just, you know, walked in expecting more. Okay. But I think that, that, you know, hearing people kind of, uh, you know, no, like I said, nobody hated it, but enough people were just kind of like, Oh yeah, yeah, I watched it. It was, it was okay. And it's like, Oh, all right. I guess maybe it's not that great. Then when I went to watch it, it was like, oh, I, I really like that. Though. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, I think I've held back watching it. I think for the same reason, because you see that it gets like, you know, 3.5 stars uh, out of mm-hmm. five and it's like, eh, maybe later. But if Pete, the retailer says, go see it, I'll go see it. Well, it's not a must see. You know, oh, so now you're now you're pulling back. <laughs> well, I, I need to temper your expectations. Later okay, later. all right, <laughs> it's all right. It's, I love I love the, that kind of stuff though, that behind the scenes kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Me too. Well, let's talk about the episode itself. Um, in a literal galaxy of fascinating characters, I have to say that Spock is probably my favorite. And the producers of the show back in the '60s, they knew what they had on their hands. At least they eventually did. Uh, with the character and an actor like Nimoy behind him. And in this episode, they finally give the character a chance to to stretch his legs a little, and we get to see his philosophy of logic on display and how it helps, you know, or hurts in this case, in a, in a command situation. And I think it was originally um, writer Samuel A. Peoples, who wrote the second pilot for the show, that suggested uh, originally to Gene Roddenberry that Spock should be half-human, and as such should have the problem, you know, of... of alienation um, have the problem of both sides having to control his emotions and yet having to sort of sell people on this idea of logic and have that struggle that I think makes the character complex and interesting. I, I tend to forget about his human side sometimes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and then, it, you know, I think, you know, because he's around humans a lot, they just see the Vulcan side more, but you, 
there's a lot of times where he's a little bit, you know, even in this, he gets kind of, besides the kind of climax, he, there's times where he gets a little emotional, more yeah. so than, you know, his father would be proud of, I think. Uh, yeah, sure. It's kind of like Worf. It, you know, he's full-blooded Klingon, and we tend to see him as the Klingon character, but then when you put him on a Klingon ship, other Klingons right. are like, this guy's barely a Klingon. So if we had some kind of episode where Spock goes and serves on a Vulcan ship, I'm sure that they wouldn't accept him quite the same. Yeah. Why is everybody so racist in Star Trek <laughs> that aren't humans? Um, he's a complex character. Um, he's also a character who is supremely capable and supremely confident, and I think that makes him attractive. We talked previously on a previous episode of this show um, about the idea of competency porn. Um, the idea of a character like Spock or a character like uh, Sherlock Holmes or, or Batman who can do just about anything and has character flaws, but honestly, they're really minimal, or at least they don't get in the way of them right. just knowing everything and being able to, to do everything. And in this, this kind of, that, kind of, uh, that kind of trips him up in this episode, because in this episode, he's applying his logic to the situation. And he's able to assess the situation that they're, that they're in, but he fails to take into account um, the human factor, or in this case, like the alien factor, to the point that his crew nearly turns on him. Like, if this is his first shot at command, it's not exact. It's a B minus, <laughs> to use uh, your grading sc- uh, <laughs> system. And the episode totally sets it up because everything starts out fun. I, I like the fact that after they crash, it's they're really kind of casual. They're all like, ooh, what a ride. Oh, I bumped my head. Ah, ha, ha. Uh, and then it accelerates to Spock's telling them that they can't stop to bury the dead people that are piling up. And, yeah. and the, the director takes pains to get uh, a reaction from uh, the rest of the crew in those uh, scenes. Like you you push right in on... on um, McCoy or on Boma and they're all given that like this guy kind of look they're all getting pretty fed up with Spock right <laughs> except for I love that Scotty's just kind of doing his business the whole <laughs> Scotty time is, yeah he's he barely knows where he is he's in his element he's just totally like in the zone and, and right you know he's kind of also you know I'm sure he's you know practical about it and like would probably be agreeing with Spock most of the time but nobody gives him a hard time right until yeah. at some point bones does and then he just gets slapped down like Scotty just barks at him and and uh <laughs> And that's that. I said, just then back to business. You know, he's like, all right, I'm going to go back to you know, shooting the engine with these phasers. Right. Yeah. Uh, head up his ass, Scotty is your best Scotty. I think uh, <laughs> he's uh, working on the. Uh, they look like Fisher Price <laughs> toys. Oh, they have them all totally. painted like yeah. uh, primary My first colors. Shuttlecraft. Yeah. So he's working on his Fisher Price shuttlecraft, and he's like, oh, we don't have a lot of fuel. And then later on, it's like, oops, all the fuel's gone. And he's just he's not really reacting emotionally. And then later, it's like, what's that? Electrify the entire thing with some sparkly gloves. I can do that. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's not a factor in this, but definitely the rest of the crew is a factor, the rest of the seven. And that's something that I've always liked um, in Star Trek in general, is that when they... They don't focus, you know, we've got our Spock, we've got our um, Kirk and our McCoy, we've got our heroes, but when it focuses on the fact that they they do have to work together as a team and that one person's vision or one person's um, skill or drive isn't going to be the only thing that's going to get them through uh, these situations uh, that are, you know, more than just your everyday sort of problems. Yeah, I mean, and I love it when they do, I mean, I guess it's not, this is probably more in the competency porn kind of thing than the... uh, than the you know overcoming your differences to work together angle, but the uh, it, I feel like they do that really well in Next Generation a lot, where you'll just have that 
you know, uh, you you can mix a couple of different characters together, and it, it's this amazing gravy. Whereas you know, like like Data and Jordy and either you know like Barkley or Wesley or something like that, just working on a problem sure. around a table in engineering, you know, and it, it's this amazing like. Like even though they're just talking complete techno babble nonsense, like I just get this like ooh, this little thrill of like yeah, like they figured it out. Just like seeing that problem solving in action, and and there's a little bit of it in this with with you know Spock and Scotty just kind of like agreeing on stuff that needs to get done. Right. It's a and, it, it's an adventure show, but it's like a workplace show as well. Right. Yeah. Totally. It's like a weird episode of The Office. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where uh, <laughs> where Dwight gets uh, stabbed by a giant spear. Yeah. Um, I, I like situations like this, like I said. I, I But I have no... Well, I like tense situations in the show, too. And I have no idea how they get past uh, the purported idea from Roddenberry about that humans don't have conflict with each other in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe since they never break into like open rebellion or mutiny, it doesn't count, but we get pretty close. Like Lieutenant Boma is pretty upset with Mr. Spock so much so that, and I can't remember who did it now, but somebody wrote an extended universe novel about how Scotty basically brings the guy up on charges, uh, when they get back because he was like near mutinous. Yeah. I just read that. And I was like, oh, that like, I, um, it made me happy in a way. Okay. But I was, I was just like, oh, good. Like somebody else, like, cause I, you know, again, this is, could be because of the way I'm raised or, or the way that I, um, you know, approach this, that the whole time I'm just like, well, why? everybody leave Spock alone. Like he's, 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 he's going to do it. Like he's like, stop messing with him. Like you, he's, he's got it down. He's going to save you all. Right. And, uh, and so then for them, for, for me to see that, you know, oh, good. Like, Scotty was just busy, but he he agreed, and he would totally like he would be the one to bring him up on charges later. Like I'm, I'm glad some other writer had that. Some other writer was in the same kind of mind space that I am. Right, I was right. just like he needs he needs to get you know punished for that because he was being mean to to Spock when Spock was going to save him. Right. <laughs> uh, Spock is pretty even handed um, with the situation in this episode, and I like the fact that he maintains his principles even to the point of refusing to kill the giants and he tells the crew to leave him behind you know when they have a chance to escape and he's stuck but still he's under a lot of pressure and i like the fact that it manifests um in a very spockian way uh he's not screaming and flailing his fists like zachary quinto uh but he starts to kind of lose focus in a tense situation he gets lost in self-examination there's a great line when the giants are about to open the galileo up like a sardine can and spock is like wait a minute this doesn't make any sense i did the thing and those guys want to kill us and you guys hate me the sum of the parts can't be greater yeah. than the whole this doesn't compute yeah so that's a very like it, it doesn't even though it to the to the crew of the galileo it seems like a very vulcan moment it's a very human moment i think it's this human half yeah. kind of second guessing his Vulcan half, which is, you know, it's very Spock, but yeah, um, closer to the surface because he's under so much pressure. And normally it's this kind of stuff that plays a lot subtler in his mind and, and you know, and, and doesn't affect him that much. But here he's just kind of having this like logical <laughs> breakdown. Right. Yeah. Uh, smoke's coming out of his uh, pointed ears. Uh, at this right. point, the crew doesn't know that, you know, he's Spock. You know, you know this is, there, there's no real continuity on the show, but he hasn't saved the ship over and over again. And of course, right. there is no continuity in the show because like, I think two episodes back, he stole the entire ship and took it to Talos IV. <laughs> right. Uh, but we don't really count things like that in the original series. Uh, quick sidebar, what do you think of Zachary Quinto's portrayal of Spock? Um, I like it. I, uh-huh. I think he does a good kind of, uh, a, a pretty... 
um, faithful without being kind of uh, um, like a faithful adaptation without being kind of slavish to it. Okay. You know, he's he's a more he's a modern take on Spock, and I think he brings some some things to it. You know, I like that it's really you know I'm such a nerd that just throwing a, like a like a little time travel wrench into the beginning of that timeline just you like soothe so many potential wounds like anything nitpicky sure. it's just like oh different timeline yeah everything changed you know right. that one thing changed everything so like you know, this isn't exactly the same way the old spock would be but you know it's because different timeline you know like right <laughs> because one one thing happened differently so like who knows yeah, uh, it's like the butterfly, but in this case, the Kelvin explodes, and then yeah. Spock is a little different on, on Vulcan. It was recently announced that Quinto will be hosting a revival of In Search Of. So as far really? as yeah, as far oh, as that's the, amazing. Uh, the Nimoy career path goes, I'm guessing his next step is to re- release a cover of the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, and oh, then if only. maybe direct a Ted Danson movie. I guess. <laughs> Uh, the character of Spock he goes through a lot of changes from the beginning of the series to uh, Undiscovered Country, the last uh, full original series movie. And they're all ones that could really tamper with the core of the character. I mean, he loses all of his emotions in the motion picture. Um, he basically has his mind reset after he's brought back to life. Uh, he has to deal with his half-brother. And then finally, in Star Trek VI, we see a Spock who has, I think, fully mastered his two sides. Um it may be logical in the course of the movie or the events of the movie, it, it might be logical to strike, diplomatically speaking, while the Klingons are, are weak and, and disarray. But it's also a move of compassion on his part, I think, in wanting to preserve the Klingon culture. And he even deals uh, somewhat emotionally uh, with Valeris's betrayal and also the shortcomings that he sees in himself. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, as soon as you said that, I thought of the kind of his response to Valeris. Um which maybe, you know, if you step back behind the scenes, makes more sense if that whole arc was Savick. Well, yeah, right. Um, but also then just kind of his, you know, you get it enough in that movie. You know, it's a well well enough made movie that you get this sense of him being kind of proud of his, you know, his new protege. Yeah. And and that kind of turning him. Um, but yeah, no, he, he has a great, you know, and it's it's him you know not only is it kind of writers becoming more comfortable with the character you know as time goes on and developing new wrinkles but you know you know nimoy becoming you know playing him for so long and just being kind of you know, knowing exactly what spock is yeah i think there's a big difference between you know it's 1967 and theodore sturgeon writes something and nimoy's right. like oh, i don't know if i do that to uh you know 1991 <laughs> and nimoy's like yeah so i'll be doing this in this scene and people are like yeah okay sure um, I think he says, too, in Star Trek VI that uh, he admits that logic is the beginning of wisdom and not its end. So I think it's mm. great that the character gets the sort of development over time and also the kind of send off that you don't usually see in long running franchises. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge Fast and Furious fan, but I'm guessing Dom isn't quite as well drawn as Spock is. <laughs> Could be. I, I, I Again, <laughs> maybe <laughs> every time it's on, I switch to Star Trek V. So I'm not sure. <laughs> right. Logic is the beginning of wisdom. Um, there's always been like a head versus heart dynamic, uh, in the original series, um, usually embodied by the trifecta of Kirk, Spock and Bones, you know, Spock is the intellectual, uh, Bones is the passionate one and Kirk strikes a balance between them. And, but here we see logic is in full governance of this uh, crisis. And no matter how sanguine Spock is, uh, about the predicament, it's going to take a little passion or possibly desperation to get them out of it. Do you think that Spock's actions at the end are, those of desperation and passion or does it still 
it conforms to logic in his own sort of way. Oh, it, I, I find it completely logical that it's, you know, there was no, um, you know, the Enterprise, he knew that, you know, uh, correctly, he, he surmised that the Enterprise had already gone on, it's gone on its way. They passed their deadline. Right. They weren't going to be kind of hanging, like doing another lap around the planet wasn't going to help them at all. Right. And and so he, uh, you know, logically, he, he, you know, kind of, you see that kind of POV shot, him scanning the kind of dashboard and and hatching a new plan and acting on it instantly doesn't make it uh, you know necessarily emotional or passionate. It's just a, a, a oh okay solution here right. potentially. You know a, a, a low odds plan is, is much better than a no odds plan. You know. Nice. So um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I I find that completely as an extension of logic. Which of course uh, they you know like I said before they make fun of him for the <laughs> at the end of the episode. That, yeah. It's it's like the ending does that thing that you get in a lot of 60s uh, genre shows where the entire episode is life and death, like men are being impaled on giant spears. And then it becomes it for two, two minutes, maybe 60 seconds, it becomes archly comedic. You know, they're like, Mr. Spock, are you sure you weren't just a little human? <laughs> he saved our lives. Look at this idiot. Right. Yeah. And meanwhile, at least three men have died. Yeah, right exactly uh, you know cut to cut to their you know empty quarters or something just at the at the end um you know in memory of those we lost yeah, an in memoriam kind of you know uh latimer and they you know have, have a, right just pan um, somberly across some gravestones and like the, the echoing of laughter in the background dana gould has this bit that he does about the forced humor at the end of trek episodes <laughs> it's really funny yeah because they're always like oh there'll be no triple at all and they're like <laughs> they're just pissing themselves <laughs> laughing it's true I, I noticed that on this one i was like as it ended you know my wife and i was like well look at like they're all laughing really hard. Even like, look at that. The girl who wasn't even in this episode is suddenly like <laughs> laughing at Spock, like at her commanding officer. Right. There's like a blonde, uh, the girl you know, with the coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, she was uh, just kind of walking through with, you know, with a clipboard or something and decided to laugh at Spock, right. <laughs> which again, uh, my wife was just like, it's really not nice. They're like, why are they, they're being like racist, you know, or, 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 uh, you know, or, or it's the, the his essentially his religion. You know, it's like right. I, I think we said it's like they're 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 all just like consistently trying to get him to eat pork or something. You know, they're just kind of like like Are you sure you were you know that 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 wasn't you, uh, like you know human emotion? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, they're just like dangling you know pieces of ham in front of him or something, and he's just like, No, I I'm 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 fairly sure that this is this is how I live my life. It's terribly cruel. Uh, actually there is one episode where it sort of makes sense. It's the day of the dove, uh, where the ship is taken over. Klingons are on the ship and they're all taken over by this entity that's trying to make them fight each other and it magnifies their negative emotions. And at the end, it's kind of a cop out ending, but they all like have to act happy cause that's like detrimental to the thing or it sees that they can be happy and it's like, okay, fine. And so him and, um, is it Kang, I think, are like, they're all laughing. They're kind of forcing themselves to laugh. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And they're like slapping each other on the back kind of aggressively. So right. it sort of that, pays that off. That time it saves the day. So. Right. <laughs> they're all practicing for that one time. Right. Uh, that, that sort of trifecta, uh, you know, it's, it's good structure. It connects with an audience. But I don't think it's something that Trek creators necessarily had in mind when they were putting the series together. Um, I've talked before on the show about this great exchange that you can find uh, on the website Letters of Note, 
where Gene Roddenberry is um, writing Isaac, uh, Isaac Asimov, and he's asking him, you know, what do I do? I've got this character of Spock, and everybody loves him, but Bill Shatner's the star of the show, and now he's getting mad that Nimoy's getting all this attention. And Asimov writes back and says, you know, don't, you don't have to, like, cater to one or the other. Don't separate them. Have them, like, work together uh, and save each other. And Roddenberry, what he gets out of this is that the way forward is to make the team be the premier character. Mm. And um, that's something that Trek has followed in all its incarnations. I mean, we just called it a workplace comedy or <laughs> drama. So yeah, yeah, totally. That's that's a great, um, you know, ostensibly, you know, on paper, yeah, Kirk is the captain, and he's like the, you know, he comes up first. Yeah, in the in the in the credits, so he's the star. But that, you know, it it really doesn't work. And even I, I was. Uh, I almost say pleasantly surprised because it, it, you know, but I was uh, interested to see that uh, Leonard Nimoy said he was having difficulty just acting without kind of having Shatner to act off of in this episode. Mm-hmm. Which, again, that goes to maybe that that works in his favor that he's he's struggling with it. He's struggling working without Shatner the way that Spock is struggling working without Kirk. Interesting, in this, you know, in this situation, and so it's a. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, there, there's so many wrinkles here. I love it. Yeah, there's a diff, there's a sort of jazz that happens between him and uh, Kirk, like when they work together. But now he's Spock, and everybody is uh, and doing his thing, and nobody's really happy with his thing. <laughs> They're all mad that he uh, refuses to, you know, to be as scared and as worried as they are, really show it. So yeah, um, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where things could have gone better. Um, without them just killing every giant caveman the second they touch down just to open fire with the phasers. Um, presumably, you know, the problem is, is that the cavemen don't understand logic, so you can't make a logic-based stratagem that'll d- deter them. It reminds me of, uh, well, you're a comic book guy. It reminds me of the conflict between the Hulk and the leader. Like, the mm-hmm. leader is the most brilliant mind, and he's got all these foolproof plans, but the Hulk is his nemesis because the Hulk is pure instinct, and so the leader can't anticipate his actions. Although it would right. probably be help if he made everything punch proof if i'm the leader first thing i do just make it all punch proof right then start talking about logic right (laughs) then you then start up your plan um it also reminds me of a sci-fi short story by robert sheckley called the gun without a bang and in the story this astronaut like lands on a planet and it's it's sort of a parable about the perils of technology like he's got this gun and it's a disintegrator gun it's the new ultimate weapon in the universe basically and you can just pull a trigger and there's no light there's no flash there's no sound things just disappear and he's exploring this planet and he's attacked by like these kind of wolf uh, dog-like creatures and he thinks no problem he just starts vaporizing them but like they don't understand what's happening like there's no bang, you know, there's no smoke, there's nothing to indicate to them why their comrades have disappeared. They're just gone. So the dogs like just keep coming and coming and eventually start to overwhelm him and he gets in a lot of trouble. And hmm. the s- story goes on and eventually like another ship shows up to save him or find out what's going on. And they find out that like he's built a, he's got the dogs in check now because he's created a bow and arrow like out of wood. And he's built um, like a shelter and everything. And he tells him, yeah, I just started like shooting arrows. And when the dogs get hurt and they, they see that one of the dogs has an arrow sticking out of his ass, like they, they understand now. Like they understand the consequences of trying to attack me, whereas before it didn't, it didn't matter. And of course, the sort of like, you know, 50s sci-fi twist is that he's using the gun to pound nails into the, right. uh, the shelter mm-hmm. that he's building. Yeah. Would you say that was Sheckley? Sheckley, yeah. I'll have to look it up. 
That sounds like a, I mean, I get the gist of it now. So, but uh, well, yeah, I just wrecked I'll it for you. Look at it. That's all right. <laughs> But it's the same sort of thing. It's like he's, you know, Spock is, well, I think it's safe to say, slightly arrogantly putting a lot of faith in his uh, logic and the technology that they have. And also just their sort of superiority, if you will. Um, but the creatures, you know, they don't have any respect for that. They're just, right. um, what's going on here? Let's, let's, let's spear these guys. That's our thing. Yeah, I'm trying to think of if it would be more effective if he did like, uh, you know, would it, be, would it be more effective if they did a uh, kind of arena situation if they look for some raw materials and build you know like a big okay. bang cannon you know right yeah uh, to try to scare them off or, or maybe go more uh you know devil in the dark maybe he should have just kind of you know tried to mind meld with one of them and figure out what sure. their deal was blow his leg off and then yeah mind meld with him <laughs> sorry about right. that <laughs> um i uh maybe they could so the electricity or electrifying the hull seemed to work maybe they could like spool out cable and create like a electric fence type perimeter oh, there you go although i don't know how much uh fuel they need for that and i actually don't understand at all how the fuel works because <laughs> apparently you can adapt whatever is in a phaser to run a shuttlecraft but then later at the end of the episode you can eject whatever that is and ignite it maybe it's it doesn't have to be liquid it could be plasma i suppose but yeah. standardized parts, uh, A-OK in the 23rd century. Everything works together. <laughs> well, it's close to it. It's not just, you know, as simple as plugging it in. You need a, you need a Scotty there. to, to adapt. Like, oh, okay, I've got to just do this and then this and look right. at it through this weird magnifying glass. And then everything will, then it'll all work out. Some other notes for the episode. Uh, the transporters are on the fritz, uh, which increases the tension. But I guess it doesn't really matter if they can't find the crew to beam them back. It doesn't matter if the transporters really work or not. Um, was that I, I? I must. I think I missed the line of dialogue. Was that because? I think it's because uh, of the uh, Murasaki uh, quasar, okay. like the effect of what's happening. Yeah, I assumed that it was, but I, I, I didn't. I missed the line of dialogue, so I was just like, all right, well, that, I, it, a little weirdly, too much coincidence. It was like, oh, also that's broken. Yeah. <laughs> Have it be, you know, messing with the scanners and the equipment and the transporters. That makes more sense. Yeah. It leads to a fun little bit, though, a little bit of world building where they're they're beaming down inert material and then they beam it back again to see if it's like corrupted to test if right. it's safe to use the transporter. I'm just wondering, what do you have on hand to beam down that you don't care if it comes back melted? Are they like Nickelback CDs or something? <laughs> I was probably, you know... I, looks like the same you know there, there was a similar analog of that on the shuttlecraft so maybe it's just kind of weird uh, oh right when they're either. like throughout the hologram box and all this luggage and stuff yeah, yeah exactly so i don't know if those are just kind of you know inanimate carbon rods that are just there for like test purposes <laughs> sure. or if they're um you know maybe it's just you know stuff that's not really essential some very sad looking guinea pigs inside the boxes yeah, or that, that poodle with a horn. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, actually, speaking of music, uh, I, well, actually, we weren't Nickelback, but uh, I want to bring up music. <laughs> uh, when the crew is skulking around through the fog on Taurus 2, they hear there's always this sound that accompanies um, the appearance of the giant cavemen. And I would swear that it's a sound made by a percussion instrument called um, a guiro. Uh, which is the one that's like it's a, like a ribbed gourd. It makes that zzz, 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 that sound. Oh yeah, okay. It sounds like corduroy pants. You know when you walk in them. <laughs> so maybe really the giants are corduroy pants. Yeah, but, well, maybe the giants are just wearing giant corduroy pants. It's the forefront. The, you know, there's a couple of the ones with spears on the edge, but once they get past that, they're all wearing corduroy pants. Right. And, and, you know, tweed blazers and like, oh, Mr. Spock, welcome. They've developed the Folsom Point and corduroy pants. That's the extent of their technology. <laughs> 
there's a shot in the episode after Latimer gets speared um, where Gatano slides down the hill to where he is. And half the screen has clearly been obscured in post-production uh, by fog. And apparently it's because the censors thought that the guy laying there with the spear just coming out of him like a flagpole was too graphic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was... Um, this this Watching it for this was the first time that I watched the remastered one. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, which I'm, I'm not really a fan of for the most, sometimes it's very subtle and, and it, I'm okay with it. It works. Yeah. But most of the remastered episodes, I think just look, it's distracting. It's a lot like the special editions of star Wars. And, okay. Interesting. Um, you know, I find it, it's like taking me out of it. Um, because then it, it, once I notice it once and this, there's a lot of effect shots in this that, um, then I'd spend a lot of time being like, wait, is that, is that original or what? Did they change that? And then, you know, <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So you're not saying they look bad. You're just saying that you can't turn your brain off. Well, some of it, like I, I wasn't happy with the, the way that the shuttle take off and stuff. It looked okay. very, some, and some of the other kind of, it looks dated already. Whereas, you know, obviously it's replacing stuff that looked charmingly dated, you know, so from, from the sixties that at least matched kind of, <laughs> the grain of the sure, uh, sure. of the rest of the show versus this stuff which you know looked cutting edge you know 10 years ago whatever it was that they did this yeah uh, uh, probably more now but um now looks looks dated and looks you know suddenly it's like oh i was just watching star trek and now it's you know beyond the mind's eye or something what happened like there's a, <laughs> there's a there's a cg demo going on in search of yeah right. i um yeah, I, well, I'm glad that I finally have somebody I can talk with about this. Everybody that comes on the show loves the effects, and I also think that they're fine. Like, they're, they're fine. They look like um, a project that was, you know, half crowdfunded, half supported by somebody who was ex- expecting to be able to sell the DVDs, which is what it was. And I, but I, I've kind of come to terms with them, and I think that it's kind of like the token that you have to pay to get the the quality of, cause the remaster is great. Like the episodes have always have looked better than they ever have. It's sort of like the star Wars special editions. Like you kind of have to put up with the extra job of the hut scene to get like the really great looking uh, picture that you get. Yeah. For now. <laughs> One day I have faith that all of this will be fingers crossed. The people will come red. to their senses and yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the effect looks cool. Like it looks cool to begin with, but I liked the, you know, the actual kind of swirling kind of pulsarness of it. But the, um, then a lot of the other stuff is a little bit too much. Speaking of like uh, quasars, um, I usually try to deliver a homegrown conspiracy theory each episode uh, to add a little headcanon. Um, but I couldn't think of much for this episode. But in this case, I'll provide a friendly, friendly neighborhood retcon. Um, the Murasaki object is, of course, referred to as a quasar in the episode. There was a debate in the 60s in the scientific community about what quasars actually were, whether they were objects that were smaller and closer or if they were huge and far away. We now know that, of course, they're extremely distant galactic nuclei, and that's not going to work for this episode. Um, But there is a phenomenon called a microquasar in which you have a binary pair of stars, uh, one of which is a black hole that gives off X-rays and ejecta uh, like a quasar does. So we'll just say that that's what they meant. Now, how the cavemen (laughs) were making fulsome point arrowheads, I don't know. I don't have an explanation for that. Well, parallel uh, development. Parallel development. Yeah. That's how we got the corduroys, too. 
Exactly. Um, and speaking of the Giants, uh, there's the Giant Spear and the Shield props, which are just awesome. <laughs> there's like, you know, the yeah. Giant drops uh, one of the shields, and it's basically like a uh, six-man lean to to our heroes. I'm just imagining uh, PAs off camera winging these huge spears at the actors and <laughs> being careful not to hit them, not so the actors wouldn't be hurt, but so they don't damage the props. Yeah. Yeah, there's one. One of the spears hits the rock. At one yeah, point. and you see the flakes yeah. of styrofoam come off. Yeah, yeah, and then it's like, oh, I wonder if that guy got fired. <laughs> yeah, you probably did. Uh, there's a fun little glove compartment in the shuttle that opens up, and they get the phasers out of. Yeah, but it's yeah. funny that uh, they go to all the trouble of making a phaser glove box, but then the actor just bends down and picks up the phaser belts off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't have another little door. Just, yeah, just throw those on the floor. That's fine. There's a lot of cool kind of shuttlecraft interior stuff that it's, you know, I, I, I like that. I like it when they explore it, you know, when we see kind of new new rooms on, on the ship or this, you know, like kind of walking around. You know, there's one point where uh, it looks like, you know, Spock like opens the door and goes out to call for, you know, uh, Bowman and, and, and Bones. But they come in like through the back door and it's just like, well, wait a minute, what? Right, right. What's the layout of this? You know, I, on Star Wars Minute, Alex is always kind of obsessing over the the map, the interior cartography of the Millennium Falcon. Oh, okay, okay. I love that. You know, knowing kind of what's what and who sits where and how the whole thing works on the shuttlecraft. It's so much smaller, much easier to parse. But I, I like, you know, I like that they explored it, and the whole thing kind of takes place in this. You know, it's very much like a, almost like a play. You know, like sure. a stage play where where it's it's you know mostly. Uh, with with a few exceptions, it's it's like uh, almost like Twelve Angry Men or something, where you're kind of you know you're in this kind of one kind of tight sweaty room, right? Uh, a famously uh, huge setted uh, production. Yeah, um, there must be some kind of like a point of growth or like just threshold that a franchise passes where you start to care about that from a design perspective, because I'd have to imagine. Before they came out with the technical manual or before people were making conventions where they're all dressing up and arguing about where the bathrooms were, the designer didn't know. Like there was no floor plan. They didn't care. Like they didn't care that I actually read a couple anecdotes um, about uh, which is for a different episode where they had a director come on and he says, OK, now you're going to come out of here. And Shatner's this is like the third season. And Shatner's like, well, I can't come out of here that there's nothing over there. There's no door. And the director's like, what are you talking about? Who cares? Just come on the scene. <laughs> And at some point, like, you graduate to the fact that, no, this corridor of the Millennium Falcon goes back to the room where the chess table is. Or, you know, this leads to, this is the corridor that has the smuggling compartments in it. Like, you don't get that in the first year of something. But maybe after two and a half movies, you know, or enough um, online follows, (laughs) you know, or like three, three conventions, suddenly people start thinking, oh, yeah, we have to go back and make sure that we know where all that stuff is. Maybe now, you know, people start off with more of that. Oh, like in the modern yeah, like, climate. Right. Because they, they know that people are going to start asking right away, I think. You right. know, whereas at the time, who cares? You know, what's somebody going to, you know, make a, make a detailed blueprint of the, of the bridge <laughs> of the Enterprise? It's like, oh, you don't yeah. even know. Yeah, you have no idea. Uh, yeah. I think like Wikipedia and Memory Alpha were probably built from the ground up. But I bet the Riverdale wiki was written and put together before the show was. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Now that we're coming to the end of the episode, do you have any final thoughts or sort of parting shots about this episode? Um, I don't know. It, it it definitely it holds up every time I watch it. I'm I'm always kind of a little bit 
um, well, to go to go back to my my earlier kind of grading system, I feel like a lot of people give it kind of like a B B minus, but I it's always one of my favorites. So I'm always just kind of I feel like I have to defend it more. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you know it's it's one thing that I've learned, especially you know doing uh, now almost three full seasons of uh, talking about the prequels is that you know some things that other people might not like as much uh, are things that other people love. You know, it's the one man's meat is another man's poison kind of a thing. That uh, <laughs> sure. Just because, you know, I love this episode doesn't mean everybody else has to. And it's okay to be different and, and, and appreciate different things. Yeah. Well, I don't think that you have too much arguing to do to defend it. Um, I don't think anybody thinks this is a bad episode. Although I was surprised in researching it online to see more than a few people giving it kind of an average rating. And I was surprised by that mostly because um, in getting ready for this, um, like you did, you know, I watched it a couple times and I think like, I think I watched it three times. And the second time I thought, well, I should probably watch it again. And the third time I thought, do I really need to watch it again? I think it'll be boring. And I started watching it and I was immediately drawn in. Like it's, it's engrossing. Um, it'd be cool. I think if like the bad guys were more than just guys, you know, coming in off a land of the lost or whatever, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting dive into Spock's character. It builds and sets up a lot for, you know, what comes down the line and yeah, it's a, it's a neat little, uh, workplace sci-fi drama. Yeah. Which we need more of. Yeah. We definitely need more of. Well, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? I think you said MySpace Dad, like the MySpace Dad. I was like, wait, what? Who, who do you have on your wall for <laughs> captains? Um, it, it's um, it's tough. You know, everybody brings something different. Um, you know, for years I would say Kirk, but I really do appreciate what you know Picard brings to it, and I really appreciate what Janeway brings to it. My limited experience with Voyager, mm. it's hard for me to not. I'm not. I'm not ready yet to not say Kirk. <laughs> okay. Um, I, my, my, you know, down the road maybe a bit. I might, you know, as my as my uh, logical brain kind of chews on it some more. I might be able to say, uh, you know, that uh, you know, I might be able to point out the things that make a different captain uh, better. Sure. But uh, but my my heart jumps out and and stomps on that and says Kirk. I can understand that. If Kirk is in Spock's place in this episode, Kirk is in the shuttlecraft and it crashes, how does the situation play out differently? That's tough because I don't... Uh, well, I know. I think... I feel like there are some situations where, where you know, because it's a fairly common kind of setting that, like, oh, we have to go do something, but somebody's lost, you know? Sure. Like, I feel like they they go to that well a few times and, and I feel like sometimes it is... Spock and he did, you know, he's very much kind of adhere to the rule book, but the letter of the law as opposed to the, uh, you know, as opposed to the, the intent of the law where it's like, all right, well, we have to turn around and leave now. Let's go at, uh, you know, space normal speed. Yeah, he, you know? yeah, he, right. He finds ways to sort of cheat without being insubordinate. Right. So I, 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 as far as the, the enterprise part of it goes that I think that would go the same, but on the, on the surface, I don't, I, 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 I feel like people would be giving Kirk less of a hard time. You know, they would they would just be following him right Im- immediately and maybe it would be his, you know, it would be his bravado, his his kind of, you know, he would be the kind of, you know, maybe jump in there first and, you know, 
punch him in the nose, uh, you know, phaser set to kill first that would uh, that would cause the problems. You know, right. maybe they weren't necessarily a uh, going to attack the shuttlecraft, but then once you know he does something that causes them to, or or you know, does something that leads to them maybe not directly, but leads to them being riled up and attacking the ship or something. You know, it'd be different, different factors would play into it, but the end result would be the same. Sure. Or maybe they, he, he kills them all, but feels real bad about it. Or, you know, maybe he, uh, he meets the, the lady of the tribe and the, uh, <laughs> and then the other ones get upset and they get jealous and that's why they're attacking. The, he, uh... he finds the caveman's computer and talks it to death. Right. There you go. <laughs> Uh, now that we've reached the end of the show, uh, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? You know, I I feel like I want to, I you know, I love the blue shirts and I kind of want to say sciences. But then uh, I think, you know, in reality, it's more kind of engineering because I find myself to be a problem solver, kind okay. of I'm more of a glue guy than a specifically kind of, uh, you know. Um, so that's I'll, I'll go with all that. <laughs> It, it uh, you know, doesn't bode well for my future. I'll, I'll, I'll go with a red shirt. I'll say I'm in engineering. Uh, you could be a social engineer. Like, there's always room in the diplomatic corps. Get back. Oh, there you shirt. go. Yeah, so I want to, you know, be out there and see new exciting things. Well, Ensign the Retailer, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe and, in part, the Star Wars universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, main on Twitter, I'm Pete the Retailer, uh, all one word, no no underscores or anything. Uh, but uh, mainly where we're where I'm I'm found. If you go to StarWarsMinute.com, there's you know 700 and something uh, episodes of me talking about Star Wars that you can <laughs> dig into um, if you'd like. Um, yeah, and then uh, ABC Devo is uh, is just we took a little bit of time off for the holidays, but we're uh, we're back and and uh, gonna finish out the Devo catalog. So if, uh, if music is your thing, give that a try. Or there's alphabetical, which uh, which we did all of. We finished that, so it's it's complete. You can you you, know, you can get the full set. It's alphabetical.com. Really, I don't do a project unless I can get the .com. So okay, <laughs> whatever it is that I'm working on, go to the .com. Sure. Uh, any music projects like coming up in the future, like a Creedence Clearwater review or anything like that? <laughs> we uh. It, Every time, you know, we we uh, just recently had the alphabetical crew get together to do a week of Star Wars Minute, and every time oh, we great. do that, we we realize that we we like each other and and uh, think about doing other stuff musically with them. So we'll we'll see, okay. uh, we'll see where we go from there. You know, having done all the Beatles stuff, we might go on to the, some of their solo stuff, or or maybe a different band with a similar kind of impact. Thanks again, Pete, for joining me. Sure, thanks for having me. And we're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Some